God, you are worthy of our praise. Um, there is no other, no other God but you. All the other gods that people make are idols, but you made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before you. Strength and joy are in your sanctuary. So we ascribe to you glory and strength. We ascribe to you the glory due your name. We praise you. If you've made us, you've saved us, you've given us hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and we gather here to sing, to celebrate, to remember, and I pray our hearts are deeply filled with a sense of gratitude and a sense of hope. We love you, we want to love you more, and we're grateful to be able to be together. I pray that you'd use our time through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word, to shape us, to confront us with our own need for you, that we might become more and more like you, that you pry our hands off the things of this world that compete for our attention and our affection, that while we still have time, that we'd make you our first pursuit, our greatest love, our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm sorry, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and I was telling Chris earlier, I think I came out a little aggressive on the singing this morning, given the fact we're having two services, so we'll see how uh, I can sustain my voice. But I love it. Love to, love to be here singing with you um, on this particular day. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a unique dynamic with Easter pastorally because you feel like there's a lot that rides on Sunday to really preach, like your best sermon, you know, the, the wardrobes come alive at Easter, you know, right? It's a special day. It is a special day. But every single Sunday we preach Jesus risen from the dead. Like every single day we come in here to sing, we're singing in light of the fact that Jesus is alive. And that has changed everything. And so this morning we're going to spend time in Luke chapter 24. You can flip your Bible, uh, flip open your Bible to Luke chapter 24. We're going to read Luke's account of the resurrection uh, we'll have it up here. We're going to read a little bit more, maybe than normal, uh, because I, I can think of no better thing than for us just to hear God's word as it relates to the resurrection account in the Gospel of Luke. But before we dive in, <clears throat> you know, most of you probably had the experience of, of hearing from someone like, hey, this is a must. It could be a, it could be a movie. Someone's like, hey, this is a must-see or maybe you've, you're getting ready to travel somewhere and you encounter someone who's already been to that place. They're like, hey, this is a must eat. Like there's a particular dish, ice cream, restaurant for you foodies. You know what I'm talking about? There's a place you have to visit while you're here. This is a must see. And this morning what we're going to see, and I'm going to highlight, it'll be highlighted on the TVs as well, is that we're going to see in this three kind of three three-chunk story in Luke 24, the word must will show up several times, and a couple other versions like should or uh, must be um, fulfilled, those kind of phrases will come up multiple times. And the, the general idea that I want to convey is that the resurrection is a must. Uh, the resurrection is a must. Theologically, it's, it's a must personally for us. And so as we celebrated Good Friday a couple days ago and we, we considered more deeply the cross and Sergio led us and thinking through the reality of Jesus' suffering on the cross, um, the resurrection is what makes Good Friday good. 
It's only fruitful if Jesus came alive again. His crucifixion is only beneficial for us if he's alive today. Good Friday is only good in light of Resurrection Sunday. And so Tony Evans, a pastor and author, my love, he said it this way. He said, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He was only getting started. And that's, that's the, that's the soul securing truth for the people of God is that Resurrection Sunday, the very first Resurrection Sunday unfolded into the future, the future life of Jesus in and through his people to make him known in this world until he returns. And so we live as peculiar resurrected people, as it were, with new life filled with the life of Jesus to walk in newness of life. And so we're going to be reminded of that today. And you can join with, join with me in Luke chapter 24. We'll start in verse 1. This is one of the four accounts in the New Testament. Uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and then kind of volume 2 of Luke was the book of Acts, which we studied, it's been a couple years ago at this point. We're going to read several chunks, and as I mentioned, this, this section, chapter 24, is broken up really into kind of three parts of the story. The first section is the angel's appearance at the tomb to a group of women. That's one section. The second chunk, which is unique to the book of Luke, is these two disciples who are traveling on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appearing to them. And the last part is Jesus appearing to all of his disciples and speaking to them specifically. And we're going to kind of journey through, we'll summarize a couple of brief sections, but we'll read through most of it. Luke 24, verse 1, this is God's word for us. We're going to read through verse 7 to start. It says, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day, rise. He must be delivered. He must be crucified and he must rise. So Luke tells us that these women from Galilee, among others, were standing at a distance in chapter 23 watching Jesus be crucified. And there's a man named Joseph of Arimathea who took Jesus' body with permission to, to bury it, wrapped it, put it in his own tomb that had never been used before. And these same women saw Jesus' body. They saw the way it was wrapped and they saw the way it was buried. And then they left to go get some oils and perfume and ointment to anoint the body of Jesus. And they show up at the tomb on Sunday only to realize all the things they prepared won't be necessary because he's gone. And these two men in dazzling apparel, some of the other gospel accounts make it clear that they're angels in appearance, but they show up and these angels become preachers. And the empty tomb is like simultaneously like the pulpit, the illustration, and the sermon all in one. It's like, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Like Jesus isn't here. He's alive. He's risen. What's really interesting about this is the angels preach 
in retrospect, they're like, hey, remember what he told you. Remember what he said. And so they preached the, the very same words that Jesus gave his disciples back in Luke chapter 9. Verse 22 is when Jesus was still alive. He said to them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and must be killed. And on the third day, he must be raised. So he says, remember, Jesus told you this was going to happen. And this is a must happen. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes to a church in Corinth and he talks about the gospel message, the good news, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But he says this, this good news is of first importance. And this is how he summarizes the gospel message in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Hard stop. That's the good news. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised, and all three of those things are musts. But particularly today, we think about the must of the resurrection. Why is it a must? Well, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, it's like if Jesus isn't alive, then this is what I'm doing right here. This preaching is meaningless. It's in vain. And in fact, in a way that stings, we could say that if Jesus isn't alive, then our faith, the very thing we come here to celebrate, is also vanity. The resurrection of Jesus is a must. He goes on to say that if Jesus isn't alive, then you are still dead in your sins. But if he is alive, then everything has changed. Everything has changed. And the empty tomb demands a response from every person alive. Jared Wilson, who's a preacher and author, said it this way. He says, if the resurrection isn't true, then we should all stay home because religion makes a lousy hobby. But it's true, though. We laugh, we laugh, but it's like if, we, if Jesus isn't alive, we're not doing anything of purpose. We're just fooling ourselves. But the resurrection is the source and the reason for our singing. Because everything that Jesus did on our behalf is proven to be effectual and powerful. Our preaching is fruitful. Our faith is not in vain. It's secure and stable. Let's look in verse 8. So what happens after this encounter with the angels? In verse 8, they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. I want to comment here just for a second. There's a whole lot of things that could be said on Resurrection Sunday because there's usually a higher percentage of people coming into the church who don't normally come to church in general. And maybe you're even skeptical. And I don't have time to be able to give you just a purely apologetic address about why you should believe in the resurrection. But I want to say a couple things by way of what's given to us in this story. And here's a couple that we've already seen just in this brief section. The first is the unlikely testimony of the women. So in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
all four of them show that the empty tomb was found by a group of women. Like, why is this significant? Culturally and socially, the testimony of women would not have been listened to. It wouldn't have been considered legitimate. And so if you were a writer of a letter, an account about the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you wouldn't have put that the first witnesses were women. It would have, it would have diminished your credibility. And so what it does do for us now in this season of history is we look to this account and all four of the accounts, and that's a sign of credibility to us. That the, the, the women who came were the ones who saw that the tomb was empty first, and they were the ones who ultimately preached the empty tomb first, which kind of leads me to the second layer of encouragement as well, and it's the initial unbelief of the disciples that turned into boldness. So their initial reaction to, hey, the tomb is empty was, hey, this is just like funny business. This is an idle tale. Like, they didn't believe. And in a strange way, their lack of belief in that moment becomes a really strong evidence for the reality of the resurrection because of what plays out the rest of history for them and the rest of the New Testament. So here's just one small snippet of this. You take Peter, for example. He's among those who believed it was an idle tale until he saw the tomb empty himself. You turn left in your Bible, in the book of Luke, and you'll see Peter rejecting that he even knew Jesus at all, much less standing up to preach. He was scared of a little slave girl because she wanted to call him out for knowing and following Jesus. And he said, I don't know him, denied him three times. He was a, a coward in that sense. But what happens in the New Testament is you go just 50 days forward, 50 days in the book of Acts. Who do you see standing up in Jerusalem preaching a sermon about the risen Jesus? Peter. Why? Because he believed that Jesus was alive. And these disciples went on to die a martyr's death, all of them except for John, who was exiled into Patmos, believing, like central to their preaching was the fact that Jesus was alive. And can you imagine, like is it really feasible that Peter would stand in Jerusalem, the very place where Jesus strolled into town on a donkey publicly and was, went through a trial, a Roman trial, and where he was publicly crucified and where he was buried in a known location, is it really tenable that 50 days later he would stand in the very same soil and preach that Jesus was no longer in his tomb? Consider that. Because if Jesus is alive, it means everything for you. It means everything for me. So consider the claims of the resurrection because the disciples believe that Jesus was alive. Let's go to verse 13. Here's the next part of the story. This really curious, kind of fascinating story of Jesus' interaction with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding? with each other as you walk. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, 
Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And we'll pause there. So these two men taking a journey, seven-mile journey on foot, talking about Jesus. They're confused. They're disheartened. Like so many people like them hoped that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem them, which kind of zooms us in on their perspective of what they believed the Messiah was going to be and to do. So author and pastor J.C. Ryle says it this way. He says, a temporal or temporary redemption of the Jews by some sort of conqueror, like a military or political power, appears to have been the redemption which they looked for. So they were looking for a temporary, sociological, like military transfer of power. That's what the Messiah would do and what he would be. That's what they looked for, and that's why they were discouraged that Jesus had died. J.C. Rowell goes on to say this. He says, a spiritual redemption by a sacrificial death was an idea which their minds could not thoroughly take in. Now, in the midst of their confusion, even discouragement, there's just some really human elements to this story. In a sweet display of grace, the risen Jesus what does he do? He draws near to these two men, and he walks with them. And he has this really, if you ponder just for a moment, a really humorous exchange. And I love when we see humor, particularly from Jesus. It comforts my heart. He says this. So basically, like, what, like what's this conversation that you're holding with, with each other as you walk? So anytime you see God ask a question of someone, you have to consider like, okay. It's not that he doesn't know the answer. He's trying to draw something out of them. So he's like, hey, what are, you guys, what are you guys talking about as you walk? And their response is like, hey, are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know like, what's happened here these days? And you can see Jesus just kind of lean in and be like, no, tell me about it. <laughs> tell me what it was. And they go on to tell about him, like what he has done, what he preached. And I love that he just draws them out, but then it, it ends with this rebuke, and they go on to say about, talk about how the women had reported the, the tomb empty. They didn't find his body. Verse 25, look there with me. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, there's the must, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Was it not necessary? So when they reached Emmaus, Jesus stayed with them. When he broke bread, you see this a little bit later in that section, when he broke bread, it was like this moment of remembrance, like, oh, I know this, man, this is Jesus, because we broke bread with him before. And so they recognize him at that point. God graciously opens their eyes, but it should be a deep encouragement to us that Jesus is willing to draw near to, to walk with, and reveal himself to foolish people. 
who at times don't listen to his word, who at times don't remember what he has said. He draws near and he walks with them. And that should be encouragement to us. Even when our hearts are slow to believe, his word quickens us and makes us come alive. And there's one really significant part here that's also repeated in the next part with the other disciples is this, that Jesus interpreted the whole Bible, the Old Testament in particular, as a roadmap that led to him. Everything was a, everything on that road through the Old Testament was a sign pointing to him, leading to him. Just in brief order, let me, let me highlight a few. Like the whisper in the garden at the beginning after the original sin. There's going to be a seed, a descendant who's going to come, who's going to crush the head of the enemy. That's Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross. He's like the greater ark. Noah's ark protecting us and carrying us above the wrath of God. The blessing promised to Abraham that would be for all nations. That's found in Jesus Christ. The law of Moses itself was a tutor and guardian to lead us to Jesus, to expose the depth of our need and lead us to Christ. It's that guardian that holds us by the hand, captive until we meet him. The bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness in the book of Numbers, healing God's people in light of their rebellion against God. That's Jesus. Jesus is Isaiah's man of sorrows in Isaiah 53, the one who bore our shame and our guilt and all of our iniquity fell upon him. Jesus is Daniel's son of man, given dominion over all people in every nation. Jesus is Zechariah's righteous king who rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Every single story, to quote the Jesus Storybook Bible, whispers his name. It leads to him. And he opened to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the Old Testament to them concerning himself. The entire Old Testament points to Jesus. It's all about him. It all concerns him. And all of history points to Jesus. And all of humanity needs Jesus. Verse 44. And we're going to bump down here. So, as, so you see in verse 36, if you go back to Luke 24, the guy's on the road to Emmaus. It's funny because, just pause real quick, sorry, I'm all over the place. These guys on the road to Emmaus, once they realize it was Jesus, you know what they do? They, they actually get up and turn right back around and walk back to Jerusalem. So they can <laughs> announce to the disciples another seven-mile journey to go back to tell the disciples what they have heard. And they, their announcement in verse 34, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling, he said to them, this is so interesting and so funny, one of the most human things you could do is eat. 
They still didn't believe. They saw him. They saw his nail-pierced hands, and they saw his flesh. And in response to their disbelief, he's like, I'm kind of hungry. Can I have something to eat? So they make him a piece of fish, and he eats. Such an interesting part that Luke captures. And then Jesus said to them, verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. There's that picture again. Remember what I said when I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We'll pause there. So one of the things we, we think about when we think about Resurrection Sunday is that the resurrection is a must to prove that Jesus, in fact, is God. And we can think of it this way, is that death is the, is the final culminating work of sin. So death itself, physical death, is the culminating work of sin in this world and in our physical frame. So if Jesus remained dead, it would be, it would be evidence that he died because of sin. Like he died, just like every single other person in history, his life ended because sin had its final effect. But because he's alive, it proves that he didn't die because of his own sin, but that he died for sin and for sinners. Acts 2.24, in Peter's sermon in Jerusalem, some 50 days after Jesus died, he said, God raised him up, this Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He must die for sin, but not because he sinned, but because we needed a substitute. Someone to bear our shame, otherwise we would have to bear it ourselves. He must rise. And one of the things we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it's one of the clearest summaries of what we see is Jesus becoming what he was not so we could become what we are not. It says, for our sake, God the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I want to pause here just for a second because as we, as we celebrated the cross on Good Friday, as Sergio talked about the way in which Jesus became sin, and one of the ways that we can understand the Christian message, the gospel, the good news, is, is, is we have to see it in light of the bad news. That every single one of us have broken God's law, without exception, except one, namely Jesus. All of us in this room have broken God's law. In many ways, for many days, sin is our nature. We don't want God to be our king, and so we seek to rule ourselves. And because of that, what the Bible teaches is that our relationship with God is fractured from the beginning. There's enmity or strife between God and man. We were created to, to live for him, to worship him. But sin has broken that relationship. And so we have, as it were, this certificate of debt. If you can imagine, just for a moment, creatively to think about every wrong thing that you have done. 
in motive, in word, and in deed. And just think creatively about how long the scroll would be to capture every single wrong thought, word, deed, and motive. It doesn't take too much work to think that would be an incredibly long piece of paper. And if you can think of that piece of paper, that scroll like a certificate of debt, that captures something of what the New Testament teaches. Is that we have, like we possess, and in some sense we are a certificate of debt. And there has to be a payment made. Because God is righteous and holy. He has to judge sin. But the miracle of the Christian faith, this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 captures, is that Jesus became your certificate of debt. He became the very thing that he was not, namely guilty in that moment. He became like a sponge to soak up the wrath of God for every single ounce of the judgment that we deserve because of our sin. And that certificate of debt was canceled on the cross when he was crucified there. And so Paul talks about it in the book of Romans, like how can God simultaneously be just and forgive people? If he has to if there has to be a payment for sin, how can he be gracious toward people? It's because of what Jesus did. Because full payment was made. That's why in Romans it says that he can now be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And his work on the cross, as I mentioned before, is only made effectual by his risen power that he would not decay in the tomb. He couldn't be held in its power. The tomb wouldn't lead to his own corruption, but it, in fact, would be a display of his destruction of death. The empty tomb preaches that in Jesus Christ, death has been emptied of its power. And his life to us is personal and powerful. And I think about this story. I was praying this this morning, and I came, I came to faith 20 plus years ago as a college student. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And I pursued my own thing for 20 plus years. And I remember this season where I began to understand the, the nature of this simple but profound message that I could have forgiveness and I could have grace and I knew my sin. I knew I needed to be right with God. I didn't know how to get there. I had no, indi no indication in my heart as to what I would tell God as to why I deserved to get into heaven when I met him. But, God, open my eyes to see the wonder and the reality of Jesus. And I know for many of you in this room, he did the same thing. And that revelation, that work in us is personal, like as disciples of his. And so we can relate to the women going to the tomb, confused, wondering what's happening. Their Savior has died, and we're confused, but then God brings to light for us through his word the reality of what Jesus has said, that he had to die and he had to rise. And so we can go on proclaiming to others that he's alive. And we can relate to the guys on the road to Emmaus, right? Just walking along, considering in confusion. There's a moment in time where you were confused and you were disheartened, unsure about your relationship with God and what all of it meant. But God is gracious to those who are disheartened. Walking along unsure. 
And here, some of you need to hear that God is so gracious that he does what he did for these men. He will come alongside you and he will walk with you. If you will look to his word, you will find him. Seek him while he may be found. And we can be like the disciples. And I just, it's such a, I actually prepared a message just simply on the statement, peace to you. I had like three different sermons this week I was working on. I don't know if you got the best or not, so I apologize. <laughs> but the fact that Jesus' words to his disciples were three simple words, peace to you. Why is this significant? You think about the guys and the gals, particularly the disciples in this particular spot. What did they do? They abandoned Jesus in his moment of need. They ran. They protected themselves. They were holed up in a room for fear of the Jews. And Jesus comes and he doesn't firstly say, what are y'all doing? Get out there and be on the attack. I'm alive. He could have been justified, but his first words are, peace to you. Unbelievable, like unimaginable offer of peace. Oh, you're, okay, you're alive and like we're, st we're still right, we're still right with you. We still believe in you. So it's, there's peace that's there. And you may feel like a, an impenetrable lack of peace in your life. If you're not right with God through Jesus Christ, you have to start there. Every other Efforts you make to try to find peace and stability in this life, if it's void of Jesus Christ, will only be temporary at best. You need to find the peace with God to be able to experience the peace of God. And you get that peace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But to the disheartened, the risen Jesus draws near and walks with us. To the foolish, he's able to reveal the glory of what he's done so we can walk in new life. In the face of our failure and denial of him, he says, peace to you. And one of the wonders of the resurrection is no matter how much you fail, Jesus will never fail to be alive. He will always be alive. He has an indestructible life. One of the most soul-securing pictures that I can think of of this reality is in the book of Hebrews. Because he's always alive, you know what's also true? He always lives to pray for you, to make intercession for you. There's never going to be a moment in your life if you belong to him where Jesus isn't actively praying on your behalf his finished work so that you'll be secure in the end. There's no whisper or accusation from your enemy or anybody else that can persuade God to feel differently about you than he is determined to do through his grace and his kindness in Jesus Christ if you belong to him. Jesus will always live and he'll always be living praying for you as his child. Can I get an amen to that? That is good news. Living hope for today and eternal hope for endless tomorrows. And I know that there's practical, I mean, we want to push this all the way down in our hearts. You know, First Peter 1 helps us with that. Like through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have living hope for today and for endless tomorrows. And so whatever's pushing up against you, if you know Jesus, you can know that your greatest problem is solved. And it doesn't mean that those things don't matter. 
What it does mean is that the greatest problem you have, namely a wrong relationship with God, can be fixed by fixing your eyes on Jesus. Dia Carson said it this way. He says, you're not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Because Jesus is alive, everything changes. His life is perpetual, so that means he'll always be present praying for us. I'll finish with this. Like the resurrection is a must to make us righteous. And some of you in this room, I think the risk on Easter Sunday, maybe similar to Christmas, is that you can feel like coming into church somehow solves maybe the wrestle in your heart as to where you stand with God. And I think in a, in a more churched culture like the South, it's good to be reminded that Jesus himself looked at the religious person and he says, unless you're born again, you won't get to heaven. And he says it this way in John 3, 3 and 7. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Do you feel a sense of urgency in your heart today based on your condition? My encouragement is to run to Christ. Find the forgiveness you so desperately need. And one of the things we see in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, says, then he brought them out and says, sirs, it's the jailer, what must I do to be saved? And they said, you must believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So repentance and forgiveness is preached. So all the things you're chasing, repentance means to say no to those and to turn and say yes to God. I want to put away the things that compete for my heart and my life and the throne of my existence, and I want to put all those things squarely on the person and work of Jesus. That's repentance. Turn, believe in him for the forgiveness of sins because he was delivered up for our sins and he was raised for our justification in an unimaginable exchange. And this is what I'll close with. Jesus not only cancels our debt, but we get, when we look to him, we get credited to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not only debt paid and debt removed, but unimaginable riches credited to our account that we don't deserve. And I pray that for you as a Christian this morning, that fill your heart with a sense of faith and gratitude. And if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, please make today the day. Don't count on any number of tomorrows that you don't have promised to you. Believe in him today. Ask the questions that burn in your heart. Find someone in this room that looks trustworthy. Come see us as pastors. We'd love to engage you, but we're grateful that you're here. Let me pray, and we'll worship one last time before we sing. God, we, uh, we love you. We thank you for the work that you've done through Jesus. And because he lives, we, we can live as well. So we thank you for the life that is found in him, for the hope that is found in him, for the joy and, and permanent peace that we can find in him. And I pray that we would go with subjectively all of those things pushed very deep in our hearts because your word has said that every single one of those is true. Thank you, Jesus, that you draw near to the, the foolish and disheartened and the sad and those who are broken and the failures and you speak a word of peace to us, even in light of our rebellion. And I pray that we be men and women who love you more than we love the things of this world and live for you passionately as those 
witnesses, the disciples went and they worshiped you as they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually with your people in the temple blessing you. We love you. We have reason to sing. We want to do that heartily now as we close off our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing one last song.